right. Well, good morning, everybody, and uh, Merry Christmas. Yes. I feel like I can say that now and not be stoned uh, by the crowd. Um, and we got one Christmas hater over here. Ezra just said it's not Christmas yet. He doesn't hate Christmas. He just loves Thanksgiving. Okay? That's how it works. Uh, right before I came up here, my wife told me to make sure that I mention that she did not dress me this morning. I'm not sure why that's an important piece of information to share, but uh, it's been a bad weekend for my self-esteem. I was, uh, I'm, Jacob, I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, uh, but I was hanging out with my new friend Jacob on Friday, and we were talking about how I'm kind of a young-looking fella, and uh, I told him, you know, I kind of tried to grow out my whiskers here to look a little older, and uh, he was not meaning to hurt my feelings. He was really trying to offer some good advice. But he said, uh, have you ever thought about working out? <laughs> so uh, I blame Josh. He's my trainer. If it's not showing up, then uh, it's his fault. So uh, <clears throat> Exodus. Um, we are uh, back in the book of Exodus today. Go ahead and flip to uh, chapter 21 if you got your Bibles. Uh, just to kind of figure out where we're at, uh, remind us of where we're at, um, God has uh, delivered Israel out of Egypt, brought them through the Red Sea uh, in the Exodus, and uh, they are now at Mount Sinai, and uh, last week, last couple weeks, Luke has been talking to us um, from the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words. God uh, speaks to the people from the mountain, uh, these, these Ten Commandments, um, and let me just recap just a little bit, um, just at the end of what happened to the Ten Commandments. So God is the one speaking uh, to the people from the mountain. Moses is usually God's mouthpiece speaking to the people, uh, but God is speaking directly from, from the mountain. And it was quite a terrifying sight uh, if you were here for Charles' sermon. It says, Now when the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off, and they said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Don't let God talk to us anymore, or else we're going to die. Uh, it's a pretty understandable sentiment, given what they had just seen. The mountain was on fire, and God was speaking through thunder. And he said, if you come and touch the mountain, you will die. <laughs> and so uh, I, I used to kind of like judge the Israelites a little bit for saying, you know, no, we don't want God, we want Moses. But I understand a little bit better after Charles' sermon a few weeks ago. So uh, they get what they want, and Moses now is going to be speaking to the people. And God says to Moses, chapter 21, verse 1, Now these are the rules that you shall set before them. Now, um, I want to, uh, again, frame this just a little bit. Uh, we are going, if you were listening to the scripture readings, those were some of the passages that we're going to be looking at this morning. And uh, essentially, God is giving them uh, a long list of rules. It's very uh, Leviticus-esque. Uh, you know, you shall not do this, you shall not do that. If this happens, then you do that. Um, I don't know what I did to hurt Luke's feelings, but he scheduled me on Thanksgiving weekend to preach, and he's got me preaching all of the laws. So uh, if I do bad, uh, it's his fault, and 
if I do bad, I'm preaching on the laws. So, you know, uh, n- you know it's hard. So, uh, But we're talking about all of these laws that God gives. It's called the Book of the Covenant is what this uh, section of Scripture is called, chapter 21 to 23. And uh, essentially what we have here is God is about to confirm the covenant with Israel. He's about to commit himself to them, and they're about to commit themselves to him. They are going to be God's people, and uh, God is going to be their God, and they're about to make it official. Um, have you guys ever heard the, uh, heard, uh, I forget what it's called now, but the letters. Uh, have you ever heard of a DTR? Anybody ever know what a DTR is? No? Mirza thought it was a car. Um, uh, apparently nobody's ever heard of it. I don't know what circles I was in that I know this, but a DTR means define the relationship. Uh, and it's something that you do um, whenever me and Maritza, uh, were, we were friends for just a little short window, and then uh, after a while we went on a couple of dates, and then there was finally that day where we sat down, uh, and we kind of had to come up with, you know, we called it talking. I don't know, like, that's apparently still what teenagers call it. Like, oh, you know, I'm talking to this girl. Uh, but talking means more than talking. Uh, but if you want to be anything more than that, you have to have a define the relationship moment. And so we had to sit down and say, okay, you know what? Like, I want you to be my boyfriend. I want you to be my girlfriend. Uh, we're going to be exclusive. This is kind of what that means. You're not going to talk to any other girls. I'm not going to talk to any other boys. That was Maritza speaking. Uh, <laughs> um, I still talk to plenty of other boys. Um, But anyway, uh, that is a DTR, define the relationship. And really, that's kind of what this interaction is. Uh, Before God's going to confirm the covenant with his people, uh, he's kind of giving them a... um, He's letting them see what it looks like to live in a relationship with God. He said, if, you, if I'm going to commit myself to you and be your God, and you're going to commit yourself to, be, to me and be my people, this is what that looks like. And then you got all these laws that talk about how they're going to treat other people, how they're going to take care of the land, uh, what it looks like to worship God in the way that is proper. And so he's saying, if you want to be in a relationship with me, if we're going to really do this thing, if we're going to commit ourselves to each other, this is what that looks like, and this is what you're signing up for. And so that's where we're at. That's what these, this isn't just a bunch of uh, laws and rules that just kind of got thrown in there because they needed to be put somewhere. Um, God is telling them, this is what you're in for if you want a relationship with me. Okay. Um, let me pray real quick, just uh, that the Lord would help us. This is, this is tough stuff. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come and illuminate your word this morning, and I ask that you would help me. Um, and I pray that you would help all of us. I pray that you would uh, convict us where we need it. I pray that you would encourage us where we need it. Uh, We really need to be encouraged. Uh, Lord Jesus, we just pray have your way uh, in these next 20 minutes or so. Uh, We love you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want to just make quick mention, uh, just I want to make a quick mention about the law itself. Um, A lot of Christians don't really know what to do with the law. Um, Technically, everything that we've read in the past couple years, uh, Genesis, Exodus, and on through Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all of this is called the law. But this is especially like the law. It's the rules that God set forth for his people to follow if they were going to be in relationship with him. He gave them these laws to, sh- to help them thrive in a relationship with him and in a society that is ruled by God. If they were to obey all these rules that God sets before them, God would bless them and they would thrive and they would be God's people and represent him to the world and everybody would come to know him and that's the goal. But if they didn't, they would be cursed. If they ignored the law and they went and worshipped other gods, then uh, 
things were not going to go well for them. And that's what really the law, in essence, is, and that's what it was for them. And so now, as Christians who were not Israelites, um, and we don't live in ancient Israel and God's uh, kingdom back then, the ancient kingdom of Israel, uh, we kind of wonder, especially when we see some of this really weird stuff in here, we say, what does this have to do uh, with me? Especially whenever we read the New Testament, it can be kind of confusing, where Paul kind of says some things that seem derogatory about the law, make it sound like almost a bad thing. Paul says things like, uh, we died to the law so that we can serve Christ. And so uh, we kind of wonder, like, what, you know, well, what's the point of the law? Is the law bad? Uh, but if you go and you read in the New Testament, if you just read Romans 7, we see Paul v- puts value on the law. The law is not a bad thing. The law is not a curse. It was not just something to test the people of Israel. It was something for their benefit. And the law, like Luke said, is a gift and a blessing. And the law is grace. Uh, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. The law showed me what sin was. And more than that, so he goes on and he he talks about how he kind of struggles with the law. And he says, the problem is not with the law. The law is good. But he says, here's the problem. The law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual. I don't know if you guys have either read this or experienced this, but in Romans 7, Paul goes and he says, you know what, I do the things that I don't want to do, and I don't do the things that I do want to do. And essentially, he says, you know, some people might make it seem, make it, some people might come to the conclusion that the law is bad. It's prescribing things that uh, can't be done. It's given us an impossible standard. But Paul said, no, there's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with me. You see, God is spiritual, and he gave me a spiritual law, but the problem is that Paul is saying, I'm unspiritual. That's why I can't fulfill the good law. Well, the beautiful thing, I'll keep this short, is that the way God solves this problem is he, we're unspiritual, the law is spiritual, so he gives us his spirit, right? And he makes us spiritual. That's why at the end of Romans 7, he says, who's going to rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to Jesus that he does. And now we're set free from the law of sin and death. And so, uh, but, you know, he still ends up saying we're set free from the law. And so, you know, what, what's the purpose of 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 reading the things that we're going to read today. Can't we just skip it? Whenever Luke first assigned it to me, I kind of was asking the same thing. He's like, can't we just skip it? But here's the thing. Um, it's days like today where 2 Timothy 3.16 really comes in handy, uh, where it says that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we may be equipped for every good work. Um, and I want to propose to you today that the law is good. Uh, you don't have to keep it to be saved. Jesus kept the law perfectly so that you'd be saved, and we serve in the new way of the Spirit. But there's still good stuff in here. And in it, we can find the goodness of God. And something that I want us to keep in mind as we open this up, sorry, this is like the longest intro ever to any sermon, <laughs> but uh, this might be more important than the actual sermon itself, is there are times in the Bible where it's easy to find the goodness of God. When God like, leads the people of Israel uh, through, the, through the dry land, uh, through the Red Sea, and they come out and they're praising God for delivering them from, from the Egyptians, really easy to see the goodness of God. It's really beautiful and miraculous. Um, and in other places, it's not so easy to see the goodness of God. Um, and we're going to get into that in just a second. But here's the thing is we have to become really good at finding the goodness of God even in places where it's hard to find. 
I had a professor in the, uh, of, of Old Testament who said something that changed my life, uh, or changed the way that I read the scriptures, is she said, you have to approach all of the Bible with a lens of God's goodness. You have to come to every scripture and say, you know what, like, I may not understand this, but I know that God is good. And so sometimes we have to look a little bit harder. Sometimes we come to these scriptures that are difficult and we're like, I don't understand this, I'm going to skip it. Or worse, we come to it and we're like, oh man, is God, like we question, like, how could God do that? How could God say that? Uh, you know, is he good? Uh, and sometimes we don't try hard enough to find the goodness of God and the genius of God within difficult scriptures. And it becomes important to not only just do that with the Bible, but we need to be able to be good at finding God in the hard places because life is like that. There are times where it's really easy to see the goodness and the grace and the kindness of God at a wedding or in a baby or in a promotion or on a sunny day. But there are times where it's really hard to find the goodness of God in the hospital or at a funeral or even on a rainy day. And we have to try a little bit harder to find the goodness of God because Jesus did say, he said, my father is always working. He said he's even working up to this day. And so what that means is we can find God working everywhere in any scenario, in any situation, in any season, but we have to become good at trying to find his goodness whenever it's not that easy to see. You tracking with me? Okay. So, let's open our Bibles um, to chapter 21, verse 2. He said, Now, these are the rules that you shall set before them. Chapter, verse 2, he says, When you buy a Hebrew slave... Okay, I told you that we're going to get into some difficult passages, uh, and the first one is probably the most difficult. This one's a doozy. I don't know if you, I don't know if this bothers you or not, but it says, when you buy a Hebrew slave, if anything, something might go off in your mind, uh, slavery in itself, whenever we just talk about it, makes you cringe, but even worse is when you think about what Israel just came out of. Israel just got delivered out of Egypt, what they call the Bayit uh, Ebedim, the, the house of slavery is what they called it, and it was wrong. Uh, this is what, a, what, a critic, what one critic says, is they said slavery was bad for the Israelites to experience, but it was acceptable for them to initiate and practice. How is this possible that for some reason it was so evil, so bad for the Israelites to be slaves, but as soon as they get out, it says, all right, here's, what, here's how you get some slaves. Here's what you do with your slaves. It seems contradictory. It seems really messed up. And honestly, like, it seems evil. I'm about to say a few things about slavery, and I'm going to do my best to kind of try to bring out the goodness in this text. But I want to start just from the bat, right off the bat and say slavery is wrong. And owning another human is wrong. And racism is wrong. And looking at this from our 21st century uh, Worldview and stuff is going to be difficult, but like I said, we need to have an answer for this, and we need to find God's goodness here, because uh, if it's not there, we're in trouble. So um, with this, I think, uh, let's just dissect this, these first few words uh, real quick, because I think these first few words of this verse uh, will actually be really helpful in helping us to uh, kind of understand uh, what Israelite slavery was like. Uh, one thing that you have to understand, whenever we hear the word slavery, we think about it through our American lens. 
We think about antebellum slavery, uh, slavery uh, in that era of like 1700s to 1800s where uh, European people went to Africa and they kidnapped African uh, men, women, and children. They brought them over to America and sold them to white people to uh, work as slaves and to be their property, and they could essentially do with them whatever they wanted to. And it was um, essentially founded on racism. The whole thing was a completely racist establishment. I want you to know that it, uh, Israelite slavery was not that, okay? Israelite slavery was very different from that, okay? And so I want to demonstrate just a little bit of that from this verse. So if you have your, um, your Exodus Bible, I want you to uh, do this, or if you have margins in your Bible, or just if you're taking notes at all, uh, write out on the side of this verse, write these words, win by Hebrew slave, okay? Um, because there's a lot of interpretation that needs to happen just with these few words. So that first word, when, is the Hebrew word ki, which means if. Um, uh, Ki can mean if or when, uh, and this is a really popular word that shows up uh, just almost on every page of the Old Testament, but I want to go ahead and just say that uh, when is probably a horrible translation (laughs) for this word. And actually, the ESV, the one that we're reading out of, is the only translation that I found that translates it when. Why is that important? Because what we're talking about here is God is addressing, trying to redeem, and uh, manage an unideal situation of people owning slaves. He's not encouraging, all right, everybody, you're out of Egypt, go and get as many slaves as you can, and here's how you do it. No, he's saying, all right, if you're in this situation where you have a slave or where a slave is offering his services to you, uh, this is what you're going to do in that unideal situation, okay? Um, So I think it's better to translate this as if, okay? Uh, Now let's go on to buy, okay? Uh, This also makes our skin crawl probably because you think of buying another person and them being your property, uh, which this is probably not what's in view either. Uh, This word for buy is one that is contractual, and it's something where uh, you are buying the person's services. Um, If you go ahead and look in the very next, uh, next verse, or actually finishing up this verse, it says, When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go free for nothing. You see, Hebrew slavery, uh, it wasn't like you're buying this person as your property and they're just yours forever, and you can do whatever you want with them. Um, This is something where you are selling your services like a contract. Uh, You can think about this as like we talk about uh, athletes, like Tom Brady. We say that, you know, the bucket... The Patriots sold Tom Brady to the Buccaneers for, you know, so many millions of dollars. They didn't sell him. They sold, you know, his services as a contract. That's the way that they talk. Um, So this is not so much talking about somebody being your property, okay? I'm going to move through here. And you'll notice it says, you buy a Hebrew slave. This is a Hebrew purchasing a Hebrew slave. This is not a racist establishment. These are Hebrews working for other Hebrews. Other, in other uh, ancient uh, civilizations around the time of Israel, it was a racist establishment. You would go and you would conquer these people, and these people, because they're a different people, would serve you because they were a different race. The Israelites served the Egyptians because they were Israelites. And back in the 1700s, 1800s, uh, 
African Americans served white people because they were African American. But this is not what this is. This is Hebrews selling their service to other Hebrews for uh, various reasons. Okay. Um, finally, this might be the most important. The word slave, ebed, uh, this word can, has such a broad range of meaning. It can mean anything all the way from employee, somebody that you hired for a day and you pay them for their wages and they go, or it can be a worker, a servant, somebody who sells like this scenario here where they sell their service for seven years and they're their servant for seven years and they go after that. Or you, it, you do have real slavery where uh, people are conquered and they come and um, they are working for you um, for life. Um, so know that right there the word slave, anytime you see the word slave come up here or anywhere in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it can mean a lot of different things. And so you don't just take it to mean uh, just one of those things um, right off the bat. Context will kind of have to teach us uh, what it means in each uh, particular context. Okay, so um, I think that's it for that. Um, I hope that was helpful. I know that was a little bit of kind of like getting into the weeds, but I think that sometimes you just have to, especially with difficult things uh, like this. So uh, with that being said, let's keep on reading about... um, kind of how slaves were treated here. Uh, Moving on in verse 3. It says, If the man comes in single, he shall go out single. And if he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him a son or daughter, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and 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 he shall go out alone. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door to the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. One thing I want to point out here is, if you look at verse 5, slavery, servitude in Israel, slaves and servants were supposed to be treated so well that there's a potential that they come and they, at the end of their mandatory service, they come to their master and they could say, I love my master. And I would like to serve him forever by my own free will. I think that's pretty, that's pretty important. That's a pretty big deal that they would be able to say that. So we're picturing uh, service uh, and slavery in ancient Israel as something that um, is not the horrible practices that we see of Israel's neighbors and that we've seen in America. And just one final thing I want to point out about that. I had other things, but I'm going to move. Um, if you go to uh, chapter, uh, verse 26... Of chapter 21. It says, When a man strikes the eye of his slave, male or female, and destroys it, he shall let the slave go free because of his eye. If he knocks out the tooth of his slave, male or female, he shall let them go free because of his tooth. Um, when you read that, you probably thought, like, that probably wasn't anything amazing. Um, you might think, oh, yeah, that sounds fair. Like, you know, let the guy go. You knocked out his, his tooth, uh, the poor guy. Um, but what seems fair now um, was radical back then and in that place. Uh, cause, because back then, slaves were treated by other people around Israel in the way that we typically think of slaves being treated. You could do whatever you wanted to your slave because he was just your property. It was just like a thing or an animal that you could just do whatever you wanted to. Um, and really, uh, I was reading um, one book that was talking about this, and he really really pictured what the alternative was to this. Um, this is what, how slaves were normally treated in ancient Near East culture. 
said, Because slaves were regarded as the mere property of their owner, there were absolutely no restraints on what he might properly do to them. From a variety of classical sources, we get a horrible picture. Consider, for example, practices of corporal punishment and other abuses of the body. Fingers and thumbs were amputated for breaking pottery. Slaves who knew too much about their masters had their tongues cut out to keep them from talking. Prisoners captured in war were routinely blinded, so much so that blindness came to be a visible mark of slavery. Ears were removed for acts of disobedience, and in the Code of Hammurabi, ear removal was also prescribed as fit punishment for striking a free person on the cheek or for denying an order of one's master. Teeth were knocked out to curb appetite. Slaves who were in, worked indoors were castrated. So widespread were these practices that visible body mutilate, bodily mutilation was taken to be the mark of servitude. This is horrendous, horrible conditions. And this was normal slavery. And slavery in America was not like totally far removed from that. But God said, if you knock out their tooth, if you harm them in any way that's a little bit too far, they're going to go free. God put major restraints, and there was even death, the death penalty. If you were to kill your slave, you were to be killed in return. So this is radical. This is, this is way beyond what... Um, what people around there were used to. And if anybody saw this, Israelites saw this, this, these conditions were so incredibly better than what they would have experienced in Egypt. They would have seen this as the most progressive thing uh, that they have ever come across. The main thing that I want to get out of just the slave codes and the slavery parts of what we're talking about today is that all of it, if you notice, if you, if you look really carefully, and if you compare it to other slave codes in the ancient Near East and in America, what's really unique is that um, all, almost all of these slave codes are guarding the slave from being exploited. If you look, it's all of these things that you cannot do to a slave. But if you go and you look at any other codes, if you go and look at the slave codes from America in the 1800s, all it was pretty much was about was here is like all the ways that you can buy a slave. Here's a way that the master's property, the slave, is to be guarded. You get in trouble if my slave comes to you and you don't return him, that kind of thing. It's guarding the master. It's trying to make sure that the powers that be stay the way that they are. God, completely flipping it on his head, is looking out for the underprivileged person. God is looking out for the slave. He's looking out for the needy and the helpless. And this is something that's so important to learn. So, and like, this is one of the really beautiful places and unlikely places that you find it in the Bible. It's here in the law. And it's, it speaks to God's character and who he is. And uh, it, I love this verse. It, it, it just screams this verse. Uh, Psalm 68 says, God is a father to the fatherless. A defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. God is looking out for the needy. He's looking out for the helpless, and he's putting laws in place, and he's trying to create a world, a society, where the underprivileged is the one who's being looked out for. That's all I want to talk about that today. Um, I really didn't want to talk about it all in the first place, but that's all we're going to do. Um, but this is a theme that you're going to keep seeing. If you go back, and I, I hope that you do, uh, you get extra Jesus points if you read any of this portion of the Bible. Uh, if you, I really hope you go back and read this whole 21 through 23 uh, chapters. 
But um, one of the major, this is one of the major themes that's going to keep coming up is God is looking out for the needy, okay, and those who can't defend themselves. If you go and look uh, where we just were, uh, just backtrack just a little bit, in verse 22, I want to bring special attention to this. It says, when men strive together and hit a pregnant woman, this, this is like a real knockdown, drag out brawl, like, it's like a, like, a, like a western bar fight or something. Um, it says, when they strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm to the baby, then you shall pay life for life. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Do you see that? If a man in a fight with another man unintentionally kills an unborn child, he will die for it. Life for life. The life of that man is of equal value to the life of that unborn child. There's a lot I could say about this, but I think it might just be best to let it speak for itself. God continues to look out for the underprivileged. Uh, go ahead and flip with me to uh, chapter 22, verse 21. Um, a different underprivileged person this time. If you look in chapter two, 22, verse 21, shall you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners, that is, a, a foreigner, in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Wow. I want to point out just real quick the irony here. Uh, do you remember when the Israelites were enslaved in the beginning of this book? Uh, what did they do? They cried out to God. Oops. I lost Eden's note uh, that she gave me. It stays with me in my Bible. It says, Mr. Josh, I love you. Um, anyway, at the beginning of this book, when they were in slavery, it says that they, they cried out to God for his help because they were foreigners in Egypt. And what does it say happened? It says that God heard their cry, and then we know everything that happened, what, what all that entailed, right? He came and delivered them powerfully and punished the people who were abusing them. And then you, but then you look here in chapter 22, verse 21, and it says that if there is a foreigner in your land, in Israel, and you abuse them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry. This is the exact same words that he said about Israel and Egypt. See, God does not show favoritism. He is a father to the fatherless and a defender of widows, and he looks out for the foreigners, whether it's Israel in Egypt or even if it's an Egyptian in Israel. Because God is looking out for the needy and the helpless and those who can't take care of themselves. 
But you know, you'll notice something that's really different here. Uh, I don't know if you know this, but there are a lot, of a lot of different societies around Israel at the time had codes that were very similar to this one. They had laws that were like this. They even had each individual law was pretty similar to the ones that are in, um, in uh, the Torah here. Uh, but one thing that's totally unique about Israel and their law was that God comes in and he speaks. And it's not just you shall not do this, and uh, if you do this, then that. Uh, at times, God interjects, and he comes in, and he, sa- he uses the first person. He says, I. And God says, you shall not uh, oppress the sojourner. You shall not oppress the foreigner, because I will surely hear their cry, and I will kill you. <laughs> And here's the thing that you have to know, and something that we find that comes out uh, just especially here in these laws, is that God was the ultimate judge. They expected that God was the one who was going to come to the rescue. God was the one who was going to judge cases. God, Moses was a judge, and he appointed judges, and there was a judicial system, and it was supposed to, ideally they had like ideals for it, right? Uh, otherwise we wouldn't have any of these rules, but there was kind of an expectation that it's, they weren't always going to get it right. Like any other judicial system, like it was going to fail at some point. And God says, in that case, I will hear their cry. I will come and be their judge. I will come and be their avenger. Look at this next, the next verse. So, super similar. He said, if you lend money to any of my people with you who is poor, you shall not be like a money lender to him. And you shall not exact interest from him. You're not allowed to take interest from poor people, is what he's saying. He said, and if you take your neighbor's cloak and pledge and you return it, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for it's his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. And what else shall he sleep? If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. There was an expectation that God was going to judge God was going to be the one, if you are not looking out for the poor, God will. And you would much prefer the former than the latter, is kind of the implication. And this is something that carries over into the New Testament, okay? This isn't just like Old Testament stuff. Like, these days we have like security cameras, and we have like, you know, we're really happy to sue people all the time. And we, some of us feel like the justice system, you know, works pretty well for us. Uh, and so some of us, we kind of don't really depend on God as judge. But even in the New Testament, if you go and look, uh, it says, do not take revenge, my dear friends. This is Romans twelve nineteen. This is very nice, very Christian. Don't take revenge. But look at the next verse. It says, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. That seems like almost a little less Christian do you, leave, do you leave room for God's wrath? God didn't, just because God is a God of grace doesn't mean that he no longer is a God of justice and he doesn't mean that he no longer makes things right. He just said it's not up to you. Are you leaving room for God's wrath? Are you leaving room for him to avenge? More than God punishing somebody, are you looking for him to make things right for you? It's so like, I find this in myself, and you know, uh, it's not just me, but people around me, you know, like, you ever find yourself like, something goes, like we just had Thanksgiving. <laughs> uh, you ever, 
got into a quarrel or got into some kind of argument with somebody and then, you know, at, at family Thanksgiving dinner and then you go home and, you know, you just got to tell all the rest of the family about what this person did to you and, like, you go and you're trying to, like, rally them to your side and make sure that everybody knows that that person was wrong and you're right. Leave room for God's justice. Let him come to your defense. Don't feel like you have to get everybody on your side and like you be the judge and make sure that the jury is seeing everything just right and you're going to make sure that everybody, everything comes out on your side. Leave room for God to be a judge. He's still the judge. God doesn't change. So I want to point out just uh, one more thing. Um, we're going to skip a whole lot of laws, just almost a whole chapter's worth uh, right here, you can go back and enjoy them on your own. But that's just one thing that I want to point out as well, is that God doesn't change. He was the judge back then. He's the judge now. Uh, but there is this thing, uh, you know, something that further complicates the law is how we read the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus comes in and he says, you know, you have heard that it was said this. Well, I tell you this, right? And so what we take that to mean is like Jesus was taken all of the Old Testament and the law and everything that God said here in this book, and he's throwing it out and he's writing a new book. And he's writing new laws, and he's writing new rules, and these are bad ones, and the old ones are good. That's not what's happening here. Like Luke said, this is, this is grace. This is goodness. These laws are showing us God's character, and he is inviting people into life through all of these commands and through these laws. Um, and one of the big things is, like, you see, uh, especially, like, loving your neighbor and blessing your enemy and stuff like that uh, in the New Testament is one of those where we think, well, that's a New Testament thing. Uh, look here. In Exodus chapter 23, verse 4, it says, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving, uh, leaving him with it, and you shall rescue it with him. That's beautiful. Even back then, God is calling us to love our enemies. He's calling us to go out of our way to help those who maybe not can't help themselves. Well, yeah, maybe it seems like the guy can't help himself, but a guy who definitely wouldn't seem like he would help you. God's goodness is in here, folks. It's in here. Even Jesus is in here um, in the goodness of some of this stuff. Um, okay, I'm like 12 minutes over, so I'm just going to uh, go down here to the end, okay? Okay. Um, Last thing, if you guys are with me, go to chapter 23, verse 13. It says, Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in a year you shall keep a feast to me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread as I commanded to you. You shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your label, labor of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, and you shall gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times a year you shall, uh, your males shall appear before the Lord your God. Skip to verse 19. It says, The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. Now, this brings us to the very last commandment, the crown jewel, the pinnacle command of the book of the covenant, the command of all commands. It says, you shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. The end. That's literally the end of it. That's the last thing. 
That's like the most important thing. It's like the very last command is you shall not boil a mother a goat in its mother's milk. And people have theories on like why that's there. Um, some people say that like uh, you know you, there was something wrong with the thing killing something with the thing that's supposed to give it life, and it's like a bigger principle. Or you know the the Jews it's like to this day it's why. Like kosher, Jew, like, kosher Jews won't mix dairy and meat. They think it's a, the principle for not mixing dairy and meat together. It might be some thing prohibiting, like, Canaanite false worship, like, fertility practices or whatever. But nobody knows. Nobody knows why you can't cook a goat in its mother's milk, for sure, confidently. And I think that's kind of helpful, because... You know, this whole thing I've been trying to talk to us about, we're trying to find God's goodness in places where it's hard to find, and we should look harder, and we shouldn't just give up so quickly whenever we just are having a hard time finding God's goodness, finding his character, finding his genius. But I think that there are times whenever we do our due diligence, and we do our best, and we look as hard as we can to find the meaning, to find what God's doing in any given season or situation or scenario, and for the life of us, we just can't figure it out. And I think that that is the time when it becomes really important that we let all of the rest of his goodness everywhere else in the scriptures and in our lives, and we let that determine his goodness in those moments where we can't just figure it out in this situation. We let his goodness everywhere else speak to this one thing that we just can't really see where, he's, where he is. And we say, you know what, I don't know what God's doing, but I know that he is a defender of widows and a father to the fatherless, and he helps the helpless. And I know that, I don't know what God's doing here, but I know that God is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. And that's just going to have to be good enough for me right now. I'm just going to trust that. I'm just going to go ahead and pray that the Lord help us to do that. Lord Jesus, I ask um, that you would help us to see your goodness in places where uh, we can't see it so easily. And I praise you and I thank you for all the places where it is so easy, God, to see your goodness and your kindness because you have showered it upon us, especially in the love and the person of Jesus and in giving us your Holy Spirit. We ask, train us, help us uh, to love you, trust you, and to seek your goodness uh, everywhere and at all times. It's in Jesus' name I pray.